I tried to run it away Thought that my head be feeling clearer I traveled 70 states Thought moving around make me feel better I tried to let go my lover Thought if I was alone then maybe I could recover To ride it Cry it away Don't you cry it, baby But it's like rains in the sky Sometimes I don't want to feel those metal clouds Do you guys ever get drunk off of new Limerita flavors and start ordering liquid lipsticks from online makeup vendors you've never seen in real life? Hmm? Neither do I. Ha! <laughs> what you thought. Stop acting like you're better than me, and welcome to a new episode of Cake and Kombucha, episode 41, y'all, to be Pacific. Um, that lovely trickling sound you hear in the background, possibly, is this cool water dispenser thingy that I have for... Literally, I don't have it. I don't, they're not my pets. It's not my water dispensers. My sister has. It's like a fountain. It's, I can't, is it, it's plugged in. You pour water in the bottom and then it shoots out and comes out of this little, um, it's like a flower shaped fountain thingy, almost like the things you have in a playground that shoot out water for the kids. These pets are bougie. The dog, she just like yells at me. When she wants something, they're rude. We work for them. I don't understand. I've never quite seen anything like it. The respect level is not high. It's not high at all. Um, so there's that. Um, my name is Kalechi Azie. This is Cake and Kombucha. Cake and Kombucha is a podcast where I come and gab about what's going on in the world, what's going on in my mind, musings, confusings, things like that. We go, we run the gamut from the trashy and fun, uh, you know, reality TV, things like that, pop culture news, to the more serious and enraged, which if you, you know, if you listen a while, you'll... You'll get to hear it. Sometimes we start it one way and I just lose control because there's a lot of stuff going on that's really crazy. Today, though, we're going to cover, definitely going to cover the elections and um, not the elections. See, look at me looking ahead to the future. The, the debates and also kind of some things that have been coming out since the debates. There's a lot going on. There's new stuff going on with Brett Kavanaugh. Well, new stuff slash old stuff. There is SNL casting controversy. It's been kind of an interesting news week. And yes, the last podcast did come out on Sunday. So it might seem to you like this week has only been three days, but it hasn't. I've actually been, I just was late getting that one up, but we're going to go back to our regular time. So now you can be expecting the podcast on Thursday mornings. It's a little Thursday morning treat. Split it up, let it last you to the weekend, whatever you need to do. Um, before we go any further, I do want to address a mistake that I made last week with the the spy who confused me controversy. So if you listen to episode 40, I said that the Russian spy living in DC was for Russia and that it made us look bad because 
we look like we're being infiltrated by spies. So this, what I did was this thing I've been working on in therapy, which I have a bad habit of like assuming things can't be so shitty as they are because I, it's like a way of control. It's, it's a control problem. Like I'm like, no, this is the way things should go. That can't happen. That's it's just got to be. It's got to make sense. It has to make sense, right? That's my just thinking. Things are going to go in a way that makes sense to me, and then I end up continually disappointed. So I thought for sure there's no way that we're on the news making. And if you watch your spy TV shows, you know that means when you're made, it means your cover is blown. Like someone's trailing you, and they they see you. If you're trailing someone rather, and they see you, then it's like oh, we're made. So I thought there was no way they could be on TV making this uh, spy who worked for us. I was just like, there's no way that the news would cover a spy working for America, announce pretty much where he's living so that he can go promptly be executed. So I just assume, I just inferred that we were, I, I thought we were just, we found a spy in our midst that was a Russian spy working for Russia. And we were just being a little lazy and, showing no indiscretion wait no showing no discretion but what's the real word I wanted to use is like not lazy just uh I don't know thoughtless maybe about showing our dirty laundry like showing that we found a spy yeah in addition to you thinking we're hacked like they just live next door and take their kids to Holton Arms private school with Brett Kavanaugh's kids like I thought that was what was going on. In fact, it was worse. So the truth is that the spy that was whose cover was blown or who was made, he worked for America. He was a resource that was cultivated. I believe he was a Russian ambassador first, and we flipped him to our side. So that means he defected from his country and works for America. So I listened to a fascinating story on The Daily this morning, and they described like they interview the neighbors and there's this uh, trope or stereotype about like neighbors in spies, stories, mystery stories, murder mysteries, things like that. And you ask the neighbor about, well, you know, what was your neighbor like? It's just, well, they were very quiet. So apparently that is exactly what these people said about their next door neighbors, the spy, the spies who moved in next to me. They, um, so they were quiet. The the patriarch of the family was a Russian man who spoke uh, English pretty well, but his wife didn't speak any. I really th- I think she's pretending. People learn English at such a high rate around the world. And if your husband's an ambassador and you came here to live with him and you just lived here for any amount of time, I feel like she was probably that was part of her cover was just, you know, hey, Sasha, Molova, you're a bad liar. Just um, say you don't speak. Say you don't speak English. Don't don't answer a question. I feel like that's what someone said to her, and she was like, "Okay, this is easier this way," because it kind of would be, to be like they asked her questions. Oh, how do you like the weather? Fine. How's your new house? Fine. What what's the temperature outside? Fine. And so that's what what neighbor said. But the neighbors were so blasé about having a spy live next to them. It was amazing. They asked them, so like, what do you think? And they're like, well, you know, it's DC. It's government stuff. I'm like, damn, I'm not going to lie. I kind of think of spies as movies usually. I don't really think that modern countries are just 
you know, going around having kinds of accords and agreements and then legit like still training a spy force. It just seems kind of, I don't know. It just seems kind of Jane Bond, James Bond-esque. I didn't know it was that serious. But that spy is the person who confirmed that we indeed were hacked by Russia in the elections, which, as I did say, we already knew that. So it was just, you know, after the fact, relaying who that information came from, it was not safe. But apparently just one night, a van pulled up to the house and carted that whole, the whole spy family and took them away. So yeah, that's awkward for everyone involved. I just think that I don't, you know, I don't know what the line is. And certainly I'm, I know there must mean not be any legal obligations because, you know, CNN has a strong legal department. I'm certain. So I guess what they said, they were allowed to say, but it seems unwise. And I'm just, it's just kind of sucks. Like if someone is gracious enough to leave their country and reject their, you know, patriotic home of birth, and turn to us, the least we could do is not be like, well, here are the longitudes and latitudes of his apartment according to the drone that we sent overhead for our news cameras. I think it's not cool. It's uncool. So that is my retraction for today. That's my first retraction ever on, on Cake and Kombucha. Now, do I have other ones that I know that I've misspoke on that I didn't go back and correct? I do. But until I have a general consensus from you guys that you, you have something that you really want corrected, I usually just let it be, which brings me to my next point. I would love a general consensus from you. Please, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple. This is the primary, sorry for you uh, Android heifers, Apple is the primary uh, podcast source, but people that are getting into competition are Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, and guess what? Guess what? 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 Superstar. Um. Yeah. I'm on all of them. That's that's all I was gonna say. The podcast is on all of those things. But please find me at Kelezie K E L E Z I E on Instagram. Also, which is also Cake and Kombucha. You can find me that way. Email me at cakeandkombucha at gmail.com. Twitter is also at Kelezie K E L E Z I E, which is a portmanteau of my first name and my well, my middle name. My first name is actually Lisa, but this is a deep cut. So now only you dedicated listeners will know that. So Kilechi and AZA, that's, it's a portmanteau. I say that because some people see my Twitter handle and think my name is Kilechi, but it's not. All right, let's get into the rest of the stories. So this week, another racist white man was fired for being racist, and that catapulted thousands of think pieces into the ether about whether or not it's fair for white men to face consequences for their actions. This was not the title of any of the think pieces explicitly, but it was definitely the thesis, because I've said so many times that I just don't... I don't feel sorry for people who lose their jobs for stuff like this. I don't know. Maybe I call me a, call me a really militant black Panther, but I just, 
I don't really give a fuck. I don't know. Um, so where do we begin? This person is so useless and unimportant and mediocre that I didn't know his name was Shane and not Sean until I just Googled it a moment ago to share with you guys. So let me give you the facts. So SNL announced its new cast members. There were three of them. I apologize to the third one whose name and bio and prior accomplishments is being so eclipsed by what's going on right now. Uh, but amongst them, the three were Bo and Yang, who would be the first East Asian uh, SNL cast member, which people have pointed out that Fred Armisen and Rob Schneider are both part Filipino. So awkwardly, you have to say that Bo and Yang is either the first East Asian or the first person who looks Asian when I look at them without asking any questions. Uh, but yeah, that's that... But that matters. I'm being sorry. I was being sarcastic, but actually, you know, phenotype matters. Someone not being able to pass as white on the show is is a huge, big deal, actually. So, Bowen Yang, who is also queer, and I think that would be the first openly LGBT person on the show. And then uh, this guy Shane is his name. Shane. He's he's becoming like when all the guys that ever leave a bad taste in my mouth. I don't remember his name from one second to the next. Shane. Shane Gillis. Okay. So Shane, as happens when you get famous, and no, it's not a conspiracy. Let me really address this. When you get put onto something big, somebody is going to Google the stuff that you did in the past. They're, the friends, you know how when you read page six and it says sources say, sources say, well, like I said last week, I have a, People that I haven't seen in 15 years who I went to seventh grade with that were like, Kalechi, remember how you precociously like liked all these neo soul singers? You were just like that old head, 12 year old wearing a head wrap and an ankh. I mean, people remember things about you. And so hopefully you've lived your life in a way that's somewhat honorable up to the point at which you will start being judged, meaning not 12 not 13, not 14, not 15, unless you like murdered someone, it's going to be of interest. But definitely, I don't know, 30, definitely, I don't know, last year. Yeah, things you did last year, probably going to matter for a job this year. So it's not a conspiracy. I got in a little Twitter fight with someone who, first of all, let me tell you what he did. No, I'll, I'll tell you about the Twitter fight. So footage of him came up being extremely racist on this podcast, right? a podcast that's literally called like Matt and Shane secret podcast. So his podcast with his stupid friend and one of his friends online was like, how did you guys even find this footage? Like you just brought it up here to make Shane look bad. I was like, how do we, how did you guys even get this footage and cut it together? I was like, probably final cut. Uh, but you know, it, this is something that your friend made like his, no, there wasn't a gun to his head. So well, I, I don't. So, yeah. So everyone who feels concerned, don't act like a bitch to people and don't do dumb shit in public. Like as you can help it, uh, you know, this podcast, it might cut. I probably can't run for president now with the things that I've said, unless things change a lot. And I'll probably have to defend a lot of it, but I'm pretty much willing to stand by most of it. And I feel like, I am an actor and I can give sincere apologies, even if I don't mean it, that will convince most people. But that's not what happened with Shane. So on this podcast, he goes into this crazy tirade about Chinese people in Chinatown. 
He calls them chinks over and over again. He does a bad accent and says he's going to Chinatown to order noodles. And the joke is just how Chinese people say noodles, which it's just really old. It's not, it's not the, like the, the fact that people have accents is not really, I don't see how that's funny. So he, you know, his friend is like who, you know, they're downtown in Chinatown's fucking disgusting. They build their fucking disgusting houses and, you know, they just build one and they build another. And it's like, who you chinks are just building all these houses. I mean, it was really, really bad. It was really offensive to me to listen to two white men talk about an immigrant community and just the idea that in their eyes, they really do see it as this is our land. And what did you guys come here and start building these ugly houses for? Like, what the fuck are you talking about? You wish you could have some cute, notable, you know, architecture that your culture is known for. I don't even know what, let me not, let me not try to drag. I don't know what, what I don't know what country of origin their ancestors from. That's not their ancestors fault. Let me not do that. But it was just very gross. It was really gross. And chink calling them chinks. I didn't know people really said that anymore. Um, but you know, I, you know, I guess if I do talk to my Asian friends, people do get called names sometimes. And I was reminded that there is a lot of anti-Asian racism that gets a pass, I think, because Asians also benefit from the model minority stereotypes and have a lot of positive stereotypes that people, you know, I mean, also, I don't want to beat around the bush with like oppression Olympics, like black people will win. No one else was brought here in chains the primary hatred relationship that the United States was based on was white people against black people. And so that is why other immigrant groups that started to immigrate later, they sometimes feel irritated you know, the, the conversation gets boiled down to black and white. I mean, that, that is, it is what it is. However, to make certain, to make anyone who's non-white feel like they don't belong here, that's a really disgusting thing, you know? And I know that lots of Asian people who are born here still get asked like where they're from. And that, that must be maddening. I mean, to, uh, you know, people assume me, they, they'll, they assume I'm from the ghetto or like projects. That's what we get assumed that we're from. But to really just be like, I am an American. I was born in Rochester. This is what I know. Lisa Frank, mall walking, Wegmans, and have people legit talk to you like you just got here all the time. That would make me want to slap you upside the head. Like that, that must be really annoying. Um, so anyway, he says all these things. They're really bad. Uh, he also, in a comedy sketch, calls Andrew Yang a chink and an uh, anti-Semitic slur, too, like a banker Jew chink, something like that. Then he also calls Judd Apatow the F word, and so he, he calls people retard. So he's, he's rounding the bases, right? Okay. So then, you know, these videos come to light. There's a huge outcry on, oh my God, cancel culture. I'm so sick of people having opinions for the kind of things they want to consume and taste and voicing those opinions. And then multinational billion dollar companies realizing that they should probably satisfy their consumer base because it's best for the bottom line. No, companies shouldn't be influenced by what their customers want. That's how I feel about your cancel culture um, complaints. 
it's really weird to me that any you think it's weird and probably none of you guys listeners just a collective you it's weird that you think it's weird for people to get fired when there's an outpouring against outcry against them both from a economic standpoint and from a just like I don't know company culture people hire people who have values that align with the company it's just kind of weird why wouldn't that be what happens why shouldn't we get to see someone that doesn't make our stomach turn on tv if we can voice it and people know that it's going to make us less or more likely to tune in then that's just what's going to happen and I don't really understand and I just don't think being against racism is a bad thing like we can pick a value and stand by it so our value is to not be racist. So then we don't have to employ people that are openly racist on our TV shows or whatever. Like there's just this from a network. If this this is a network morality clause, you know, it, if 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 our value was we hate black people, we're not going to let them on the TV show. That's not okay. There are civil rights protections against that now. So what I am saying is, yes, there is an agenda. There is an agenda, and people do have agendas, and it's not. Well, if honestly, if you want to say it's a liberal agenda, fine. But I think it's really sad that people on the right are comfortable calling being anti-racist PC culture derisively as if that's something bad. Like you're that's strange that you don't want to be associated with those kind of values. So he comes under fire. His They're looking into it. His, you know, we know what's coming next because, again, everyone's scared of cancel culture you know, cancel culture. So he releases a really smarmy uh, commentary. This is on September 12th. So this is the first thing he said about it. I'm a comedian who pushes boundaries. I sometimes miss. If you go through my 10 years of comedy, most of it bad, you're going to find a lot of bad misses. I'm happy to apologize to anyone who's actually offended by anything I've said. My intention is never to hurt anyone, but I am trying to be the best comedian I can be, and sometimes that requires a risk. I'll, I don't know. I'll just let you decide if that sounded like an apology to you. Um, to me, they usually, they usually uh, involve the word sorry. That's a, really, that's a really simple place that most apologies start. I mean, it's, it's kind of a... It's almost like an apology, like, like a label, you know, it's kind of like an apology name tag, like, hello, my name is apology. Sorry, that that's the way that you know what's happening is an apology. And I just, I didn't see the word sorry in there. So hold on to the fact that he's not sorry, because that's going to become important for later. But yeah, uh, let's go through the smarminess. Uh, I push boundaries, like, again, I don't know that a white man being racist is pushing a boundary. It's kind of like de rigueur. It's, it's a little blasé. Um, it's not necessarily something we don't expect. I mean, I think perhaps in 2019, we don't expect it to be openly rewarded. But being a pudgy white dude from Pennsylvania who's racist... <sighs> I don't know if that's pushing a boundary. Um, let's see. Most of it bad. Okay, so you're being doing that self-deprecating thing. That's cute. That's still not an apology. I'm happy to apologize to anyone who's actually offended by anything I've said. So interestingly, this line says it all. 
I'm happy to apologize to anyone who's actually offended, meaning that you yourself acknowledge that this is not an apology. So we don't even need me to like analyze whether the word sorry is in it. You just said my apologies are being locked up for Asian people who must request one by one that I say sorry to them personally. If you're actually offended by anything I said, because why would any minority be offended by me, a white guy calling them a racial slur? I mean, I'm just funny and cool. I don't really get why you don't get it. Like you must not have a sense of humor. Okay. Disgusting. All right. So continue, continue, continue on. Then he gets fired as we kind of knew what would happen. So as of September 16th, he's fired. It would have been really awkward for them to be like, hi, we just hired our first, you know, East Asian, uh, comedian, Bowen Yang. I don't know if he's Chinese or Korean. I actually don't know. Um, and aside, beside him, we've hired a coworker that, you know, calls him racial slurs. So Bowen could just walk in the first day of work and hire and file a complaint to HR. It's awkward and it makes no sense. So then he writes, it feels ridiculous for comedians to be making serious public statements, but here we are. I'm a comedian who was funny enough to get SNL. That can't be taken away. It was literally just taken away. Of course, I wanted an opportunity to prove myself at SNL, but I understand it would be too much of a distraction. I respect the decision they made. I'm honestly grateful for the opportunity. I was always a mad TV guy anyway. Um, what kind of... I'm going to take this time to do a little tangent, a little subtweet to myself about comedians in general. Y'all are pissing me the fuck off right now, and I don't understand it. Okay, I've been in a conversation with so many comedians recently since the Dave Chappelle skit, and it has become increasingly clear to me that for some reason, I'm going to guess because it's an extremely male-dominated field, you guys think that you should never be criticized. I don't get it. Actors, singers, writers, painters, we we all think we're shit. We cut our ears off, we dancers, we throw up in the bathroom and eat cotton balls. We, uh, you know, we have, you know, sex under duress with producers. Uh, we cry. I don't, I don't understand why you guys feel like you just don't have to have anybody say anything to you and dislike anything you do. It's really weird to me. I was having a conversation online with this comedian who hosts like a, a comedy festival here in New York. And we were talking about the Dave Chappelle special. He's being really obtuse and just being like, I don't like it, but I do like it, but just being really noncommittal. And I was like, I don't just under, you know, and I said that if any of you guys listen to the black guy who tips podcast, if you need to hear a straight man, co-sign what I said, because I know sometimes it's more effective coming from them. He, a straight black man, he said the same thing, that joke about nigger that doesn't, it's not a, it, it's not what he said. It's simpler than me. Um, I don't know. He just said the structure doesn't work. Like I, you could say nigger because you're black. You can't say F word because you're not gay. Like that's very simple. And if a gay guy came up there and said, um, I'm a, I'm an F word. I'm not an F word. Why can't I say the N word like that? People will be up in arms. So, I just said, like, logically, the structure of that joke doesn't work, but because of the way Dave sh- delivers things, he's just kind of a mis- mischievous, 
twinkle in his eye guy, the way he says stuff will be funny. And he, he was like, uh, how did he really deliver? He was like, um, well, well, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute, Nicole. I'm, I'm not a nigger either. I mean, it was just amusing, but it wasn't, it didn't make sense as soon as it came out of his mouth. This just like makes no sense. Like there's literally no reason why you as a straight person would be able to say the F word. It doesn't make sense. And so I said that that joke structure was off. It wasn't like a parallel that made sense. And Homeboy Online was like, it honestly breaks my heart that people sit down and un- analyze comedy like this. I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't have to sit down to think like Atlas and just rest my head on my hands. Like thinking is is kind of just an automatic thing. You just, I hear information, it's synthesized and boop, a thought appears. I don't know how long it takes other people. I, I can't speak to that. But it, he literally tried to tell me that, you know, you can't use your powers of analysis or anything to like, receive something judge is clever and make and make let it make you laugh so then what part where does the humor come from and my point is just that if it's not your heart because you can't feel things because if you feel things that has to include offense right so you can't feel anything you can't think anything about it you're supposed to take it down your throat like some fucking rebitussin and just you get what you get why do y'all feel this way it doesn't make any sense at all because I know that you're perfectly okay being called a genius for your writing and your you know we praised Dave Chappelle when, and the other comedy special when he said I'm telling you the punchline now and then I'll circle back to it in the beginning it was just it was funny it was amusing it was predictable and yet still funny um it was just like it was cute and again I'm not I, that was not genius for me but it was cute and I I laughed so why, if I'm allowed to say that he was good at some things, can I not say he's bad at other things? You can't have it both ways. Either someone is never good or they're never bad. But no one is always good. And for you to be able to discern their good, you would have to be able to use those same faculties to discern that they're bad. So this extreme hubris and egotism that goes on with comedians is super bizarre. I don't know any other, I don't know any other um like I said, I don't know any other artists that do that, that think so highly of themselves. I can only, if I was a comedian, I would walk into my auditions, you know, sing a song and be like, excuse me, lift your head up from your notepads, you note writing ass bitches. Like that's, that's the energy. That's the comedian energy to think everyone has to like everything you do, be riveted on you at all times, yada, yada, yada. It's really strange. So like, it's just some, like, strange vocation that you can't be criticized about, like the Pope. But even he gets it. So that's all to say. When I read Shane Gillis, Gillis, whatever his na- useless name is, say it feels ridiculous for comedians to be making serious public statements, that's so whack. You're not performing all the time. Even a court jester takes his paint off and goes home to sleep in his Ikea bed, okay? If you hit someone in a DUI or something, if you committed a crime, would you be like, <laughs> your honor, with a, with a squeezy nose, I can't make a public serious comment because I'm a comedian. Like, don't be a dumbass. That's just dumb. I'm a comedian who was funny enough to get on SNL that can't be taken away. Again, we've addressed it. Literally, it's taken away. You're done. Um, and then he says, I understand it'll be a distraction. I respect the decision they made. Like, what a broy thing to be like, yeah, yeah. They brought me in the room and they were like, yeah, chinks, fuck them. But, you know, man, sorry, you got to let you go. But keep on doing the racist, the good Lord's racist work. Yeah, dude. Catch you on the flip side. And then you say, I'm a mad TV guy anyway. You just said, 
you respect their decision, you get it, but then you say that you preferred a show that went off the air in like 1999 instead. I don't know when it went off the air. Don't at me. You get my point. So he's really immature. He's shown us that. So that's him. He's an idiot. But again, as often happens now, I have to go into the part where we talk about everyone's reaction to the stupid person and how it's worse than the stupid person. For some reason, people want to defend him. I don't understand why. His jokes were bad. They weren't funny. They weren't funny at all. I am uh, someone who makes fun of a lot of people, too. I am half immigrant. There's a lot to be made fun of with accents. Some are musical. Some just sound cute. Some are pretty. Some sound comical. Um, some, I have a lot of language interactions at the nail salon. Like, I think it's funny how belligerent certain people are when they don't understand what you're saying and they just say no right away or yell at you. I think there's so much to be mined in humor that is kind of universal about certain things that are related to, you know, someone being foreign, whatever. But there was none of that. And honestly, you probably, you can't really be racist to notice that stuff because to notice it, you would have to, you would have to kind of, you know, think of other people as human beings and think that you had something in common with them. But for him, everything just came from, oh, look at those weird people that are not white like me. Look at what they do and let's make fun of it. It wasn't smart and it was pretty offensive. A number one, B, people are so eager to support this fool that they don't even research him. They're like, it's not like, you know, taking some stuff from the past last year. It's not like he did this all the time. He literally did this all the time. Comedy clubs in Philly have come forward to say that they no longer let him work there because of the kind of comedy that he did. And no, that's not anti-freedom of speech. It means his the patrons of the club didn't want to watch him but guess what if he was racist and funny they probably would still want to watch him he was racist and not funny boom so there's that he literally did it all the time then there's the people who are like well if somebody apologized he didn't apologize he he literally didn't apologize how are you campaigning for this white man's career harder than he is campaigning for it he isn't sorry so let's take that to Andrew Yang. So Andrew Yang, for some reason that God only knows, reached out to this guy. Um, he said he wanted to sit down and talk with him. And Shane said, then he tweeted that Shane reached out and wanted to talk. Um, I mean, I'm just really disappointed in him. I can't say that I thought Andrew Yang was like the smartest about race, but I, but he has economic policy, and I donated $20 to his campaign last year, okay? He has economic policies that are really smart. He just seems to get America in a, like, everything he would do would definitely help black people and would cut, like, it's, it's okay, I don't want to be one of those people that makes it sound like racism and classism are the same thing, because they're obviously not. They're separate. If you sprinkle some black on stuff, it's always going to be worse than if it wasn't there. However, all the policies that Andrew Yang would enact, they sort of cut to the core of things that hurt black people the most anyway. Like he wants to end private prisons. He wants to give $1,000 a month um, to everyone in America to help them achieve baseline stability in their homes so they can use their money towards other things. He wants school to be free. He wants health care for everybody. So all of the things he would do would help black people. And I kind of feel like the way he sees what's wrong with the country 
it it is connect it overlays with race in a way that he he kind of gets that yes black people are being economically and socially oppressed in these ways and it it was it was enough for me that is to say i just don't i don't expect him to be the deepest but i just am disappointed to see him be so pandering to someone who is this useless um so he said you know everyone should get a chance to be forgiven what did his exact words say people should get a chance to redeem themselves but you don't have to ask them hey do you want to redeem yourself for the racial slurs you called me and then like i guess and and then they agree to meet with you i just can't imagine what he's going to sit down with another grown man that called him a chink and a and all this stuff for and and teach him hey did you know that it hurts people's feelings when you call them a racial slur and that as a white man who's made it pretty clear that you sort of like believe this stuff actually it's just not a good look and then what's he gonna say well hey man my comedy is edgy and I just had to push boundaries so I didn't you know there's no accountability in anything he said so you're gonna teach this guy accountability humility empathy uh, foresight responsibility what's the opposite of hubris I guess humility what kind of babysitting therapy electroshock therapy transplant infused with another personality session do you expect to have with this dude it doesn't make any sense and people called it pandering there's other asian activist groups that are saying that he only did this to curry favor with conservatives again like yo that's so insulting to conservatives and y'all should really be embarrassed if you again want to claim him and think that the reason he's being fired is because of pc culture but I don't know why I'm surprised. I mean, there are people that just really do lament that they can't say anything they want to say anymore. And another Facebook friend of mine, an actor I know um, who's not white, for some reason was defending him. I don't know if he just decided it was opposite day or whatever. But he was like, what about Eddie Murphy? What about Ronald Reagan? What about Eddie Murphy hosting SNL? Okay, Eddie Murphy did those gay you know, comedy acts 30 years ago, which is not, you know, you guys know, I don't believe in if something's in the past, it's not wrong. But I literally mean that like, it was considered okay, then. So there is a little bit different about someone doing something that wasn't even offensive in the context of the time it was done. And still he has apologized and showed contrition over and over again. He said, I'm sorry, I've learned, I will do better. He doesn't pull a Kevin Hart. He's not like, well, I said sorry in 1979, and I'm not going to say it again. He, he, every time you ask him, he'll say, yeah, that was a thing I did, and it was not cool, and now I've learned this and this and this, and I'm not going to do it anymore. So that is so vastly different that I can't imagine you're really being sincere when you make this kind of comparisons. And then we said, what about Ronald Reagan? So this person is not white, but they're not black. And maybe that's why they thought that was okay. Like black people hate Ronald Reagan. Are you suggesting, what are you suggesting we were supposed to do? Like assassinate him? Like I don't, that, and that is why whenever I hear people wondering who's actually offended and wondering you know what the big deal is and why didn't you act like this over this why didn't you act like this over this it makes me feel like you don't know any black people 
We stay mad. We're mad all the time. We don't like any of it. We are mad. I am mad all the time. Like, it's not, I'm mad. I don't like that. I have room in my heart to not like you and you and you and you. I don't like any of y'all. I don't like any of you racists. It doesn't mean that I have time to start a change.org about every single person. That's just, do you understand how stressful, how much responsibility that is? Sometimes a bitch wants to go online and shop for lipstick and not write petitions. Jeez. Like, you obviously have never really talked to that many minorities that care about stuff like this that are not just completely subsumed by white culture where they can't even feel like they can express their opinions if you didn't know that the people you rattle off are generally disliked and that it just doesn't prove anything. And even if other people that did shitty things got to do them with impunity in the past, that doesn't mean that it should continue. So I've said all I have to say about that I guess, but I could just go on forever about the way that we cradle these racist, like baby birds in our arms, like baby birds that fall out of a big racism tree. The, the idea that you can release two statements that are completely flip and bitchy and show that you're not sorry about anything and still have people clamoring to have you get your job back is just unfathomable. Oh my gosh, I would like to be a white man for one day. I don't know what I would do. I would probably break a lot of laws and just see what happens because it's, it must be amazing. Sprinkle just, this must be like a trail of lucky charms following past you that you could do shit and just have people take up for you like this for no fucking reason other than the fact that you're white and you said something racist and they see themselves in you because they want to be allowed to say racist shit too. Ugh. Okay. Freedom of speech. I'm not even going to do that. I'm not going to do this again, like private companies paying attention to what consumers want. They can use taste. They can have guidelines and they don't, no one has to hire you. No one has to hire you. So that's it. Good night, Shane. Um, you, your career is not over. He will get so much play and conservative talk radio, uh, people like Norm McDonald with his fucking Brillo pad hair, he said that he's so sorry, like, call me, man, DM me, man, I want to talk to you. Like, these are the people that you reach out to, just a cohort of racist fuckbags who you want to sit around and talk about how America has changed and the world has done you wrong. Great. Have fun with it. Oh, and I will say that people also tried to say SNL has had a history of racism. And again, like, reach back to the 70s and stuff. I don't remember what skits they had on the 70s. I wasn't born. Okay, so do I doubt that they used to have more racist comedy? Of course not. They used to not have any cast members of colors either. But people try to reach and talk about Fred Armisen and his Obama impersonation. And he had slightly dark makeup on like that was not blackface. Not everything is blackface. You have to, we have to have some integrity for some respect for artistic integrity, which is what is also lost when we when we support these, you know, comedians that aren't funny and say that comedy is, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like Shane is not funny. Uh, Fred Armisen had one of the best Barack Obama impersonations of all time. It was better than Pharaoh. What was his last name? Jay Pharaoh. Who's that little cutie. Great. Denzel can't be beat. Uh, Fred Armisen's Barack impersonation was better. And, you know, Fred Armisen is like Venezuelan and he's a bunch of like, non-white things and mixed with some Middle Eastern and some European. So he's not, uh, but I just don't care. Like he, he didn't have to do much. He already has features that are ethnically ambiguous. And I think he had some bronzer on, but that is not, it's just not blackface. He was 
respectfully, impeccably impersonating the guy. He also played um, Governor Patterson. Sorry, not Governor, Mayor Patterson, uh, the blind mayor. And he didn't have to put any makeup on for that because even though Patterson is black, they are the same complexion. So it's it's very clear when something is looking like someone versus being an idiot. And I just resent that we're reaching so far. We are really reaching to try to make this right and fit into some sort of context. There, The things the guy said was abhorrent. It's so clear that half of the people that are defending him didn't really look at them, and the other half did, and they just suck also. But that's it. Two New York Times reporters have shed new light on the Brett Kavanaugh sexual assault allegations um, by releasing part of the research that they'd done for their book, which is upcoming and titled The Education of Brett Kavanaugh, an Investigation. An Investigation. Um, basically, of probably the most pertinent part is that they completely, very thoroughly vetted and corroborated Deborah Ramirez. Uh, Deborah Ramirez was a Yale classmate of, of Kavanaugh's, a young Puerto Rican woman at the time from a... Uh, lower middle class background, a family who was was relatively poor, particularly compared to her classmates. And she was at a party one night. She didn't drink. And she uh, said that Brett Kavanaugh uh, pulled down his pants and thrust his penis at her. And she had to swat it away, um, inadvertently touching it. And it it was a very uh, heart-wrenching account. If you listen to the interview, uh, they did a great interview in Fresh Air where they talked about how how much Deborah Ramirez, her account was similar to that of other sexual assault victims in terms of just how it caused her extreme pain and anguish as she cries as she retells it all these years later, and that was 1983. Furthermore, one thing that links both her uh, and Dr. Vlasi Ford is that they were ashamed you know, people try to put some sort of quantification on the harm that a sexual assault causes you. Oh, well, it wasn't penetration and you're still a virgin and things like that. They humiliated her. And in Deborah Ramirez's case, it, it it's stayed in her memory all this time. It enforced the idea that she did not belong at this place where people were already calling her racial slurs and things like that. This is why you know, studies have shown them in minorities, they may be smart enough to beat certain odds and get into a school, but that does not mean they're going to graduate. And that doesn't mean that the life experiences they've had before have prepared them to undergo the culture shock, harassment, lack of support from administration, um, things like that once they get there. So in short, it was traumatizing for her. There's a lot that can be said about that. But the investigators found her credible. The FBI found her credible, and she was able to uh, corral over 25 people to corroborate her statements. And among those 25 were seven of them were people who had been notified, had been told about the event way before it ever happened. And as was the case with Blasey Ford, there's documentation of these things. You tell your friends about your seminal life events and stuff. But they've also found people at Yale who remembered this happening. Um, and the FBI, uh, some of those people volunteered to go to the FBI themselves, but her defense lawyer, um, not defense lawyer, I guess just her lawyer 
gave those names to the FBI and the FBI was like, well, sorry, we don't, we, we can't really investigate you because there are time limits set. If you remember that crazy time limit, I think it was like no more than seven days to be spent on looking into those allegations. And the justification for that was, well, that's how long we spent with, for Anita Hill, which was disastrous. So that's just a little insight into the way government is running our country using other things that didn't go well as a measuring stick for how to continue to fail to give women justice in the future. Well, that's the, those are the, you know, that's the background. So what does this all mean? Basically, as we know, Kavanaugh definitely perjured himself. I think we all know that we all know, especially anyone who's ever gone to, uh, any of those Virginia private schools, which I know people who have, or an Ivy League school, he was lying about not being blackout drunk, not drinking that much, like things like that. Like that all sounded absolutely completely ridiculous to me anyway. But there's more evidence that he was lying and he was pretty much encouraged to roundly deny everything. And they also, you know, insightfully pointed out that the way he responded to those allegations is not even the way memory really works. The way it usually works with things like, especially traumatic things that happen, the, then, which is what made these women seem more credible, is that you remember things that hurt you. You remember traumatic thing with a great amount of detail, but kind of some of the other things around it can be hazy. And you might say, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. You don't pull out a journal and be like, well, on Tuesday, I was rubbing massage oil onto Biff's shoulders before we went to the gym to pound some iron, like all that crazy shit he was talking on the stand. It didn't make any sense. So he lied, right? He perjured himself to get this job. He lied. It's kind of interesting because, um, the, you know, people are going to want to say, well, liberals, of course you found, you know, you're just trying to ruin this man's reputation. These, these women who investigated him for their book found that there is also a lot of evidence to suggest that from the time where he was a kid to now, he really didn't do stuff like that anymore. He either grew up, had to come to Jesus or just, you know, just got more mature, which I guess is also growing up part one and really did have a career that showed that he was someone who wanted to champion women in the workplace and things like that. And so it may not have been false at all when you had female employees of his coming forward and talking about how he mentored them, how important it was for him to, you know, do this and this and this and like, and put policies forward that supported women. And he really might have had a career as an adult that showed that he was a pretty stand up person. And I don't have a problem saying that. I don't think things are all black and white. I mean, I think Shane Gillis is probably black and white an asshole. I don't necessarily think he's going to burn in hell. But yeah, I don't, I don't think things are all black and white. So I can say that. And yet there's still a lot of questions to be asked. My, my gripe is often going to come back to, you know, as Papa Pope told Olivia Pope, slash as we all were told growing up, well, not all of us, but many of us, uh, you have to work twice as hard to get half as far. And I'm always going to be like, is this the white man? Is this your king? Is this your king? Like, this is our best choice. A white man to act. Because there are people that never took their penis out and put it in anyone else's hands, much less like several people for the tenure of their 
their college years. There are people that didn't do stuff like that. They just didn't. And are those people the best for the job? And there are people that, so I'm coming from a, if we're going to have these standards, keep that same energy for everybody, you know, until everyone else is forgiven for their transgress- transgressions at the incredible, impressive rate that white men are, I'm always going to be like, can, can we do better? Because that's the thing, you know, people want you to think that, you know, everything's run by affirmative action and it's so hard for white guys. And da, da, da. But I, the biggest academic, uh, epidemic we have going on is really mediocrity because nepotism and systems where people are just wealthy and so their kids get to do the same thing they used to do, that breeds mediocrity. No one is having to try that hard or as hard as somebody who came from a different background. And that's why I'm I'm making this up. I don't know if that's exactly what the studies show, but studies do show that companies' bottom line is improved by having diversity around. And it's not because someone brought tacos for lunch, okay? It's not because Maria shared empanadas with the group. I think it's because... We bring spicy life experience and intelligence, and sometimes we're just better proportionally because we came from a pool of people that had to do way better to get to the same place that a white person had to. That's my take. That's not a scientific take. That's my observational take. So anyway, all that is to say, I'm coming from the I just don't see why it had to be him place. And then like perjury is illegal. I mean that too. I don't know if I should even mention the illegal part because it becomes abundantly clear when you have these conversations that people only care about people breaking the law if they don't like that person. You know, it, it, Trump breaks the law. His, all his friends break the law. It doesn't matter. So not even a perjury angle just is, is this the best person for the job? Other people would say that if you used to treat women like that, there's something that's inside of you that can never change that, you know, you're, you always have that inside of you and you're just like a bad dude. Um, I, I think it's somewhere in the middle. I'm, I think he probably was under pressure from Trump's legal team to act really bombastic and kooky and people who knew him. And this is another thing the investigation yielded that people who knew him said the way that he was acting is not even the way that he normally acts. They'd never seen him react to things like that. He's not the type of person that would usually just be so extremely defensive without any introspection. And that actually made him seem less credible, right? Because what's more credible to be like, ah, man, I don't remember. Like maybe, like did it, maybe that could have happened. Maybe that not that. I don't know what I was doing, but I do know what I was doing on Tuesday at 3.30 PM. What were you doing? You know? So that's that. I don't, it's not nothing that's going to knock your socks off because we kind of knew it anyway, but, and the same thing is with the spy thing, just further confirmation that everything is fucked up and kind of this weird feedback loop where the information will come out and you still know nothing's going to happen. So what, what does it even matter to have all these things confirmed? Okay, here's a story that's confusing. I had to read it a couple times. So do you remember that woman who owned a restaurant in Chicago who posted R. Kelly's bond for $100,000? Well, now that he's been indicted, she wants her money back. But wait, it's not what you think. Just a a note of kind of a little bit of disappointment in certain blog sites, media sites, whatever. I had to go follow the links that they 
linked all the way to the Chicago Sun-Times to find the real story. People quickly wrote this up and just made it seem like because she because R. Kelly was indicted, she changed her mind and was like, actually, bail is only for, you know, if it works out in in your favor. And if not, if you're guilty, then I want it back. That's not what happened. This bitch is actually still standing behind him. It's even weirder than you think. So forgive me if this sounds weird. It might be able to give additional context if I knew understood the bail system more, but this is what is reported in the Chicago Sun-Times. This woman, um, she if you remember back to the original thing, she said that she met him on a cruise and that was her friend. R. Kelly's her little friend. And she said, you know, as a friend, if a friend tells me I'm they're innocent, I have to believe them. I'm like, really? Is that what friendship is? If I like run over your dog in front of you and I'm like, but I didn't do it. I'm your friend. You don't believe me? Is, it, is that example too far? I don't know. It's just stupid. It's still like people obviously break up friendships all the time. And certainly someone being an accused pedophile, like not becoming friends with them for that reason, no one would really, no one would really fault you for that. Only in the case of R. Kelly does it become something to overlook because we like his music and human beings are fickle. Anyway, so she she said she was giving him, she gave him $100,000. And she did say at the time, it's not like he's broke. I'm going to get my money back. And and she wasn't lying about that. As it turns out, uh, she got her money back within three days of him getting out. Um, he couldn't have access to his money, she explained, because it was the weekend and only he had sec- access to his account because his sex slaves didn't have his Bank of America login. So she did, I'm adding that part. She didn't say that. I just got an image of, like, of course he's the only one that knows his banking information. He has people chained in the basement. They're not, they don't share, <laughs> they don't share a household budget with him. Anyway, she did get her money back, which is even stranger. But she's arguing that because he was already indicted federally, in New York and in Illinois, or what other state was he trafficking people from? I can't really keep up. But basically, because it wasn't knowledge, it wasn't like public knowledge. So she did not know that he was already indicted federally, which apparently has no bond. She should her money should be given back, and she wants that money to pay for his legal fees. So it's weird because she got paid back by him. So she wants the government to give the money back to her because even though she got paid back by him, technically she's she's the person that gave the money to the government, so that's where the government would give it back. So she was asking that they gave it back to her, and she has said that her stated intention is to later use that money for his legal fees. Uh, so this is she's not she hasn't reneged on supporting him. She's still on his side. This is all for him. Now, the court said, no, fuck you, that's not the way it works, (laughs) which I'm glad of. That makes no sense. So they said, no, you know, the bail is the bail. We took it. We're not giving it back. You have no, there's no legal standing for us to give it back. I guess one of those things, I guess you can ask, but they were like, okay, no. So that was that. Um, But I think it's, I just wanted to comment on it because even before I started reading it, I thought she was like, well, because she had said something like, let the courts decide if he's innocent or guilty, which I always think it's funny when black people say that because 
the courts decide that we're guilty when we're not all the time. So like, again, I know you really don't mean that. You only mean it when it's a rich celebrity and you feel like that will go in their favor. You, cause you don't mean it for the other instances. But I thought she was saying at first, which these other news outlets did too, when they didn't really look into it and just wrote a quick blurb, I thought she was saying, well, hey, I, I gave you the bail, but look how I'm so disappointed that you turned out to be guilty anyway, so give, my, give me my money back. She's not saying that. She wants to get the money back on this bogus uh, you know, reason that, that she and her lawyer have come up with, and then she wants to give that money again to R. Kelly to support him some more. And I just want to emphasize that this is she met him on a cruise. Could you imagine meeting just our celebrity on a cruise and thinking that you're usually you have to be pretty close friends with someone to lend them a hundred thousand dollars. That's not a, that's not a friendship that, that happens, you know, usually within the, with the the span of one year and close enough to borrow a hundred thousand dollars friendship. So we just can only imagine the kind of desperation in her life where she feels like this is someone she's to public publicly support and she's like 55 and thinks that the fact that his conduct with her seems respectable, would it have anything to do with what he does behind closed doors with girls less than a quarter of her age? I'm exaggerating, but way less than half her age, which is his preference. It's, it's that whole, well, he didn't do anything specifically to me, so I think he's a great guy. It's a very strange way to judge people, but as we know, celebrities misogyny, not believing women, putting wealth on a pedestal, people not wanting to give up powerful or, you know, black men that have contributed something to the culture culturally. That was redundant. Contributed something culturally, even if they are, I wouldn't even say problematic. I mean, criminals and, and, and predators, you know, problematic is you have a kind of funky Twitter timeline Problematic is Maxwell at this point, which I never thought I would be saying all these years later. I'm so disappointed in him. I'm back to talk about Shane Gillis some more. <laughs> I'm legit. I can't. I'm just pissed. So he's done his first stand-up since he got fired. Uh, and he got fired like yesterday. So that's just the cradled arms of support that you get when you're a fucking asshole. Um, and all of our fear that these white men's careers will be canceled. They literally never are. So he's working again, and here's his really astute understanding of racism. He said, it's so funny to hear people say, it's funny to hear so many people these days say, I'm not racist. It's like, are you sure? Being racist isn't like a yes or no thing. It's not like you do or you don't have it. Being racist is like being hungry. It's like, yeah, you're not right now, but a cheeseburger could cut you off in traffic and you could get hungry real quick. You didn't even know you were hungry for that type of cheeseburger. The cheeseburger is not Asian in that joke. So I guess what he's saying is everyone will call someone a chink if they get mad at someone driving and that Asians are bad drivers. So he made another Asian joke. This is just so stupid. Like these people just don't stop. And I was on a Fox website just reading the comments and they're like PC culture PC culture PC culture back in the day 
We used to make fun of ourselves. Bitch, is he Asian? Like, what are you talking about? Back in the day, Richard Pryor and Eddie Murphy, those skits would never stand up to now. I mean, slavery doesn't stand up to now either. Like, things change. So, literally, what does what happened on SNL in the 70s have to do with now? Like, what does it have to do with anything? Okay, I'm done. Good night. Not done with the podcast. I'm just done with that. Bye. I have not done reality TV in a momo, but a very interesting season of the Alabaster Divorcees of Virginia, just kidding, the Real Housewives of Potomac, has come to a close, and oh, there is a very interesting reunion, part one special that's just aired, which features really good makeup, better than their average, and really terrible costumes. Candace is dressed like a, a albino flamingo. It's, it, Karen Huger's wearing a prom dress. It's really strange. And someone, well, shade to, all shade to the production and editing team, but they did a close-up of the bottom of someone's shoe that had a Marshalls sticker on it. Because I guess that's where rich bitches shop. Um, so Giselle was asked... <coughs> oh, excuse me. Giselle was asked, so it seems like you somehow have a new man in your life. Now, I don't know if you get to a certain age and you only date people you've dated before, but I can say looking at my track record, I sincerely hope that's not the case. Um, but her answer to whether there was a new man in her life was, I, 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 I'm being heavily pursued by someone and I... I enjoy that pursuit. What kind of what kind of light-skinned sociopath answer is that? I I die. Like bitch, we asked you if you're seeing somebody that's special to you and you literally just said, "Well, he worships at my light-skinned feet and washes them with rose water and kisses them. So, I'll entertain it for now." What a weirdo. We already know that she doesn't have feelings. She literally sat on the couch and said that therapy helped her because it taught her how it's important to have empathy for others. Not like it taught her how to have empathy in certain situations or to, you know, connect with people that are different from her, but just baseline. I never knew other people had feelings that mattered and should affect the way that I act in the world like I swear we sit in this house and call we, we talk about she's just a green-eyed sociopath she's a mess but I thought that was really funny that even with all her being you know a southern belle highly sought after paper bag test passing she seems seems to still just fall into this trap where that all women fall into because she's dating her ex-husband who she divorced 13 years ago. He had an affair, cheated on her. She, well, very loosely, I'm going to say wrote, let's say she had conversations with a person who could write and then they turned that into a book about her being a first lady of the church because her ex was a minister, of course. Of course, he committed a, adultery. He's just in the pulpit lecturing people on not doing that. Anyway, she said, no one in the world knows me like that man. 
let this be, I don't know who needs to hear this. Actually, I do know to hear this. Who needs to hear this? Because I need to hear this. That's not a reason to be with someone. Half the time when we say that, and I mean myself included, I am dragging myself. Let it be known. When we say this shit, we are saying that the person that knows us the best through the hard times and the bad times, they're usually the person that created those hard times. They drove you half insane, and then they came over and dicked you down or comforted you about it. Then they started driving you insane again. So when they see you again, you're distraught and crying and a little bit crazy about them. I mean, there somebody knowing your trauma that they most likely were intrinsically connected to is not a reason to be with them. You can let a new person know you. Women, let us let ourselves be known to new people who aren't problematic. Let us choose a new person to know us. Let us open our hearts to a new person who we have used our feminine instinct, really listened to ourselves, vetted, and just say, you know, this is a person I can let into my life. You don't have to let him into your panties right away unless you want to. But let's just, you know, let a new person into my life. Let's start afresh. Let's not have such a fear of the trauma. Like, let's not let our PTSD from the last person that sent us halfway off the deep end be the thing that connects us to that person because we already know the worst that can happen because we experienced it with them. Like, this is literally the logic that sometimes keeps us from opening up to new people. You, you open up to that fool, you can open up to somebody else. You'd be surprised. We should start, we should start practicing with like a stuffed animal. Just talk. He's such a good listener. Let's just talk to a stuffed animal and, and let our feelings out. I bet they listen really well because they, they can't talk back. They can't say anything. They're great listeners. And, and after that exercise, you realize that is listening even that big of a deal? Because someone who's not alive can do it. <laughs> okay I'm that might have been funnier to me than it was to you but I just was like look if green-eyed white passing women have these kinds of issues then the rest of us don't even have a shot like she's over here dating people who cheated on her because they know her it's 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 not it's not looking good for the rest of us damn and she also said that it's weird for her children they've never known them together <clears throat> they came um, because they got divorced 12 years ago, like when the girls were, their girls were born. So she said, now he comes to town and he just takes me out alone and not them. And they've never seen that. And they're like, why? What are you doing? That's so interesting. I wonder, I just wondered, yeah, dating your, the mother of your children and your ex-wife. Do, yeah, what do you say? Do you say we just have parent stuff to talk about? Do you, it seems like you're, you're, you have to explain to your, like the kids have met all her other ex-boyfriends and stuff. They're on the show and they really liked her last boyfriend, Sherman, which is just, I'll never meet someone named Sherman and not think of Sherman Munster. Oh, that's not his name. It's Herman Munster. Yeah. I don't like that name. Shermie, not, not into it, but they know him. So I also don't know why she, it, she's kind of implying that she hasn't told her kids that she's dating their dad and they're not stupid. They're like, 12, 14, I don't get it. They also, I mean, but this is the same woman whose kids took a survey 
and basically was like, you get a C as a mom and I don't don't like you, kind of. Yikes. All right, that was that. Um, 90 Day Fiance the Other Way. Fascinating show. We are in the thick of things. One of the most interesting couples was Samit and Jenny. Jenny being a 60-year-old white woman who met someone on the internet that had a photo of like a handsome white British dude um, in his 30s. So still 30 years younger than her. But then when she started talking, the person acknowledged that they had a fake photo up and they were really uh, a dude named Samit, a 30-year-old Indian um, like IT tech person. I think that's what he does, like call center stuff from, well, from India. I don't know where in India, I'm not going to lie. So, of course, what do you do? You talk to them online for five years, and then you pack up all your things and move there and sell your belongings, as any responsible person would do. So she's been in India. He is telling her that he can't tell his family about her because it's forbidden, and he doesn't think they will you know, her age will be such a huge issue. And in India, people, your parents have a huge say in who you marry. And apparently, this is from the show. I didn't verify this. He said that, like, you're legally, your parents have to approve of a marriage for you to get married, which is kind of crazy to me. Like, even if you're 50, I, I really had never heard that before. I did not know that. Um, so she is... There's a lot. There's a lot. You know, she sounds like the target lady when she talks. There's just a lot. I don't want to be unkind, but she factually sounds like the target lady. Oh, Samit, Samit, you're just, you're just so wonderful. I just love you so much. You're just, you mean everything in the world to me. That's literally how she talks. And she has these meltdowns because at one point he had to leave the apartment that they shared together that he set up for her where he clips her toenails. That is, he clips her toenails. She can't reach them. So, yeah. And he had to leave and go back to his family. He said he was demanding that they go back because he lied to them and said that he had a job close by and had to move to a new town, but they didn't believe him. So he leaves her in the apartment alone. She has a meltdown, and then she puts on her. It's not really a sorry. She said she's a casual American woman, and I refuse to let someone tell me how to dress. So she turned down these gorgeous, gorgeous, saris and what I'm not sure what the outfit is called the traditional outfit where it's the midriff but that like crop top that hits everybody at the flattering part because it's like above any pooch it was fire it was like hot pink with gold I was like bitch if you don't send that to me but she turned it down and just wanted something more simple so she threw it on and went to an internet cafe to Skype with her daughters and I've just been having like a really meta like kind of yeah, I guess the word is metatheatrical time, watching her complain about how alone she is and not safe, but knowing that she's being followed by a camera crew of at least 15 people. I mean, I, as an actor, know how many people are behind a camera at, at a shoot like that. It's a lot of people. So how good actors are the people to pretend that they feel unsafe all the time? You know, I'm just a woman by myself. I, don't, I can't go out in India. I don't know where to go. I don't belong here. You could really turn to the producer to the left of you that probably has crafty set up for everybody else in your apartment. Ooh, Indian crafty is probably amazing food. And say, hey, where's the internet cafe? No, you don't do that. The production 
has to have clearance from the internet cafe to shoot there. So they knew you were coming and they set it up. So I don't, I don't really get all the crying she's doing all the time about being alone. Perhaps she's able to just muster that emotion because she really is being jerked around by Samit. But anyway, it came to a head because they just announced last week that the reason that he's being all shady is because he is marred. That's how he's, he's married. He says, I have a secret that I haven't told Jenny. And the secret is I'm marred. <sighs> he brought someone, he let someone move across the whole world for them and kept dangling in front of him, them, that he was going to marry them for why? Because apparently he's in an arranged marriage that it wasn't his choice that he's not happy with. Which and I and he says he does really love Jenny and maybe he really does, but why would you do that to somebody? Oh my gosh, let her make a decision if she wants to join all your mess. But then honestly, in, in telling you guys how it started, I just remembered that the whole thing started out as this catfish. So he's a liar. He's been a liar from the beginning. It's crazy. But she she keeps making me a little bit uncomfortable because she keeps acting like, you know, she's in danger for her life, which I don't know. I'm just uncomfortable with a white person moving someplace where no one really asked them to move. Well, your fake internet boyfriend asked you to move. And then complaining about how unsafe they are and they don't belong. And, you know, she said, she. I, I mean, I don't know what these people, they came and they took Samit, his father-in-law took him, and, and I don't know what they're going to do to me. I don't know if they're, they're not, what are they going to do to you, girl, in front of the production cameras? I don't know what to do. You will go home in a first-class flight that they are contractually obligated to put you in. But you know when you feel bad for somebody, but their cry is annoying, and you just can't, you, can, you, you no longer can like get into it? You, it's just she cries too much. It's hard to watch. So that is... The, I mean, and my other favorite thing about the show is the secret thing is becoming a trope. It, it, it wasn't this bad before. They used to feel like things used to come out kind of organically. And I don't even remember them being there were being huge surprises that were purposely kept. The surprises were more stuff like moving in with somebody you've known or you've only met in person twice is a gamble. You know, the surprise is just life unfolding with somebody you don't really know at all. But apparently with the show's popularity, someone told them now that they need to tell the, uh, the people on the show that they have to have a secret, like gather a secret and keep it with you to tell your partner at the most inopportune time possible. And it's becoming contrived and it wasn't like that before. Um, so this dude, this really strange dude who has this hot girlfriend in Colombia, she's really good looking. I mean, she could have a career in America and I, I don't know if that's what she's trying to do, but she's, she's hot. She's kind of annoying, but it's also kind of fun to just watch someone be like, yeah, I'm so pretty and anyone should be with me. They're lucky. They're lucky. It's kind of, it's kind of funny, but she, he, he has met this Colombian woman. He's 37. She's 25. She's a daughter. She literally is openly doesn't find him attractive. She's like, you know, I, I, he's not my type, but you know, we'll see how he is with, how he is with, what's her daughter's name? Valerie or something? Valencia? I don't remember. He's very sweet with her. He's very sweet. So he 
he has this secret that he's keeping. And so the secret that he was keeping was that he's been to Columbia five times, six times before, stayed extensively, because he had a Colombian girlfriend that he used to live with who was, you know, a serious relationship. She moved to the U.S., they lived together. And so he decided to tell the woman he's been talking to for eight months and that they call themselves, you know, planning on having a future together. He decides to tell the... He's afraid that it will look like he has a fetish for Colombian women or something. So he waits until he's there in person to tell her after several dates and meeting her whole family that um, I have something I need to tell you. So I, have, I have a girlfriend who was Colombian and she just texted me. And the text was like, hey, how are you? I heard you're in Colombia. It was so weird. I don't want to see that. I know it's reality TV, but I don't want to see the show get fake because it's so good the way it is. And I've met people, I know people that work on the production team, and they, so I would say the reality TV is, what they do is they nudge the, they nudge the events, right? You have a loose structure. We're going to go talk to this person now. We're going to go talk to this person now. It's not a secret that is pre-planned because they have to have camera setups. However, they don't always know how real the stuff is for the people they bring on. So I would say that they're doing their part in bringing you mess by, yes, making sure that people are interesting for sure, but also just not fully vetting. So people get, what I'm saying is people can get on reality shows and have an ulterior motive of their own that they haven't told production and they can have an agenda that they're pushing. So um, all that is to say that I hope it stays like fake natural the way it is now. I really would hate to see it become... Fake, fake. I think there's a good formula. It's one of the most popular, most watched shows in the country right now. So let's just leave it the way it is. But I don't want any more of these contrived secrets out of nowhere. Where I'm trying to, I, I'm like, you just, you really just purposely tried to blow up your own relationship by just being, I, that was enough to break up with you for just being weird. Like you have poor judgment if you think this is a good time to tell me that. You're fucking weird. I can't let this go without commenting. Um, there's some people saying that there's a rumor. I mean, it's a Hollywood rumor that has even warranted a response out of stars that they want to remake The Princess Bride. This has got to stop. It's just got to stop. I don't want to be like one of those people that only cares about things when it affects them. But you can't keep doing this to masterpieces. You, you have to... What is any, is anyone enjoying this? I can't, I honestly can't think of a movie that I was just like, I wish they remade it. That's just not a thing that I usually think about movies. If a movie was good, then it was good on its own merits. And if it was bad, it's usually in the writing. And I'm not, I just don't usually see things. And I'm like, yeah, I would totally do it over and, and just switch this because it was almost good. And I can't wait for a remake. So what is the point of these things? I feel like somebody lied to somebody else and somebody lied to somebody else. And now we have this whole trend that people think it's acceptable, artful, tasteful. It's, it's not. It's trashy. Write something new. There are people writing something new every day. I have new stuff. Like, stop this. It's bullshit. But Carrie always has spoken out. Everyone's speaking out. 
Carrie Alloway said it would be a shame to ruin a perfect movie. I mean, the movie is a classic. It's just, is the logic that if people liked it before, they'll like it when you, you, they'll, you know, they'll like it again. That, that logic doesn't hold because when you're putting together something that's new, you don't know the outcome of it. You, it was, uh, what's her name? Robin, uh, Wright pens. It was her debut, I think. I think she was 20 and had never been in a movie before. So you're putting together these these unknown elements. It's like a chemistry experiment. Is it really? Chemistry actually involves precise measuring. It's like baking a cake and not following the recipe, and then voila, you're lucky if it turns out even more deliciously than you anticipated. My point is that you throw these things together and they become something and then it becomes a cultural movement and an underground, you know, cult classic, whatever. That's a totally different energy from doing something, you know, trying to replicate that success and just saying, well, what's the most famous person on Twitter right now? Let me put, you know, this comedian as this person and let me make Zac Efron, you know, what's his, what's his name in the movie? What's Carrie Elway's character? I forget. Let me make, who would be Princess Buttercup? Um, Taylor Swift. (laughs) I just said that to make my own self angry. The point is that, stop it. That's the point. There's there's just no way to replicate something that was a, a happy accident because every piece of art that works out well is kind of a happy accident. You don't know how it's gonna turn out. And then just throw numbers at it and tweak it and try to make it marketable and then a lot of people will go anyway just because of the names but they'll like secretly hate you inside don't do it i think disney making um real making their cartoons over is a little different because it is totally different to have something 2d than to have it with people there's something and see i never even got to the point i can't i never thought i would get to the point where i was defending that but there is something very different about having, you know, we always like, when you have a cartoon, you take it in your head and you kind of turn it into a person and what that person would look like. And so it can be fun to see it turned into a human. It can also be annoying when they don't match the image that you had in your head. And we see people losing their minds about that. I've already talked about that. Uh, Mermaids, black mermaids for life. Well, that's also racism. That's different. But I think that is a little bit different. I think it's, you know, Beauty and the Beast, while I did not appreciate the singing of some of the lead characters, was stunning to look at. And it's just cool to see these little fake French, you know, village turned into a real 3D place. And and there's just a nostalgia and cachet. Like, that is going to pull someone in no matter what. That's not the same thing as just making over other movies that weren't cartoons for no reason i just saw what did we watch uh flatliners the other night unnecessary like that didn't need to be remade either the first one was great so i I don't know what's going on i don't know i I, the logic just must be it was a good story before it was a good script then so it's going to be good if i put all new people in it but i i guess i just think that it seems kind of obvious that what's missing from that calculus is the fact that you can't replicate something just marinating and coming together well by throwing money and stars at it after the fact. So that's a huge 
misjudgment. It's a huge miscalculation on the part of whoever, everyone who keeps trying to do this. But I'm insulted. I'm disgusted. Honestly, I will, I will start a change.org org petition for an, a no princess bride. I will. I will. And now, the moment you all may not have been waiting for. We're going to go over the debate that was last week. It was last week, the day that I started recording. So sorry if it's late and you've moved on. I still need to cover it. And I have a legal pad full of notes. Okay, where do we start? Julian Castro, still a snack. 100 calorie pack. That's what I wrote down. Shocked that Beto O'Rourke is speaking English first. That's what I wrote down. I was being shady to Beto. Later he redeemed himself. Um, Let's see. Cory Booker. Remember when I became a tenant's right lawyers and moved to a neighborhood nobody asked me to and then talked about how it was my community for the rest of time. I was being bitchy that night. Um, Let's see. Yang, not a great debater, but such an amazing thinker. Freedom dividend. I want one. Yeah, so he has an idea, uh, which it, it, it is kind of gimmicky, but also not, um, because I feel like it's training. You got to train stupid Americans to the idea of being given money in a way that's not very, you know, condescending and controlled. Like, you should have money because we have a government and we're a country and we're rich, and so we can have everybody live a certain way. That is... That is the kind of emotional principle, I feel like, behind the freedom dividend, which we just don't really have in our culture because we're not used to it. I, I am used to it because in my head, I feel like I should be given things and want to live fancy, live in a big mansion. You better work, bitch. Um, yeah, but, you know, other countries, like in the Arab Emirates, they give you money for being alive because being alive is an accomplishment, Did you pat yourself on the back today for being alive? No shade to dead people. But to double back, yeah, the Cory Booker notes I read, it's, I can see why people feel like he's, he's not smarmy. Uh, Insincere. I don't know what the word is. I think he's sincere. I just think he could phrase it differently. Like my community, my community, my, the people of my community. I just think it's a little, like you're not from there. You move there. And it's kind of sounds like a black like me, you know, social experiment, high yellow like me to move to the hood. And then like, I almost got shot. Like you have agency. People that, that um, you know, live there and don't have any options, they would probably move someplace safer if they could, you know, or I'm not trying to denigrate the good things the neighborhood offers or they would stay there and try to make it better. But what I'm saying is it's, there's something a little bit off about someone who has options moving there and then claiming all of the violence and everything as, it, as, as a direct effect on their lives when they don't have to be there. I, just, I think simply changing the phrasing to 20 years ago, I decided to move to the most, you know, one of the most dangerous cities, the most forgotten cities in the country, and I made it my mission to change the lives of the people there because if we can lift up this city then we can lift up all american cities you know this city represents 
what happens when America forgets its people, the biological, you know, warfare that's waged upon poor and lower income citizens. And this is my mission. I just think simply, and yes, I'm available if you want to hire me for any campaigns to be a ghostwriter. I'll, I'll help ghostwrite, but I only will work in public for Elizabeth Warren. Um, but yeah, I just think changing the phrasing would help a little bit because nobody likes a faker. Nobody likes a poser. You're already up against the liberal elite thing. Even from black people, we shade other black people we don't think are authentic. So it's just a matter of tweaking it a little bit, I think, for him. I do think his heart is in the right place. And he looks like a, a well-meaning egg, an organic one from Trader Joe's. Back to the freedom dividend. So Yang got his point right. Andrew Yang got his like his little point out there right away because they don't give him a lot of time. So he came right out talking about the freedom dividend, which he's giving to people, which is $1,000. That's the $1,000 a month that I've referenced earlier on the show. And they all shadily laughed at him, including Pete Bootyhead. Um, what did I wrote? Fuck you. Why don't you stop brushing your hair with electrical currents? Damn, I was not, I wasn't really, um, yeah, I wasn't seeing it for these people. Uh, ooh, did I call him a, oh, no, that says city, not cunt. Okay, I said, fuck you. Why don't you stop bash, brushing your hair with electric currents and fix police brutality in your stupid city? Literally, you still have no policies. That's what I have about Pete Buttigieg. I think it pretty much sums up how I feel. Um, how dare you start laughing at Andrew Yang, which is try to implement like a large change that would be a cultural change. How dare you just snicker? Like the, it's, you're snickering at the idea that we don't have to struggle in America. That's so corny to me. Shut up. Um, Kamala Harris still doesn't open her mouth when she talks. And she just came at, I don't know who she was coming at, but I wrote that she seemed like a really gully lawyer from power. She said, I'm going to drag you, and I'm going to take apart the things that you said, and I'm going to show you why you are a piece of shit, okay? Oh, I, was that Trump? I don't know, but she came right out the gate coming for Trump, which was really smart because that's just what the pundits pundits say that you have to do you have to raise the level of your fight to not just squabbling with each other but you have to show people this is what I would be like if I was going against Trump and let me tell you she would be a formidable uh debate candidate against Trump she's not gonna get her feathers ruffled the bitch has one-liners she I mean she's a black woman like she's she will come for your neck and that would be a really entertaining debate I don't really Hillary does not, you know, I've heard a lot of things about Hillary. I've heard that in, per, in person, she's very warm, kind. I've heard she's really brilliant. Uh, she's just a brilliant person. But again, like her demeanor, I'm not going to sit here and say that her demeanor helped her and that she's warm and affable seeming. She, she has, some people just don't have that on camera thing that you either got it or you don't. Okay. Elizabeth Warren personable, calm, her anecdotes make sense. I am in love with her. That's what I wrote down. <laughs> Biden immediately begins with a Kennedy quote. He just wants you to know, I'm old. I'm old. Throughout some policy. 
Okay, so that that was the opening right out the gate uh, shots. Did I leave anyone out? How many people are left? Mm. Well, if I left anyone out, that's just shade, and I guess that's how I feel about them. No, I included Beto. He said some things, and they were in English. Um, so my favorite part of the evening was probably the healthcare conversation. And, oh, Bernie Sanders. I didn't say anything about him. He's being him. I don't think he said anything super that I needed to take notes about right out the gate. But hi, Bernie. Welcome. So I really enjoyed the healthcare conversations because Elizabeth Warren, once again, like she just came right out the gate saying what I'm thinking. So every smarmy Oh, I didn't mention Amy Klobuchar either, but she's kind of not, like, she's a little bit kind of unremarkable to me, too. She really wants you to know that she's in the middle, um, and okay, cool, great. And so there are these Democrats now that are trying to distinguish themselves from Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren. There, it's You could kind of divide it into people who want universal health care for everybody and people who say things like, I don't want to take away choice from the American people. I think the American people are smart. This is my Buttigieg impersonation. I want to give, I want to have Medicare for all who choose and a private option for blah, blah, blah. And so they kept talking about this, you know, I don't want to take away from people the insurance that they already have. And they kept saying it like most people's insurance is a great thing. It's a great thing. It's a great thing. And Elizabeth Warren came out and said, and I screamed, and I cheered. She said, uh, let's be clear. I've never met anyone that likes their insurance. And I was like, thank you. So she, she, she came at them and really explained what I was wanting, what was really on my heart, which was that, you know, the plan that's being offered for Medicare for All that Bernie is a proponent of, and he wrote the damn bill, and uh, Elizabeth Warren, Andrew Yang also wants Medicare for All, they, it's the same doctors. There's just no insurance system that is a middleman and bureaucracy to get through them. You know, Elizabeth Warren, as usual, comes with the facts and tells you how much time is wasted on paperwork, how much time is wasted on billing. I know that from someone who grew up having a doctor as a parent. Um, and that there's studies shown that when there was some clinic that I think is being run in this experimental way where they don't have to bill anyone outside and patients were seen for longer, they got better treatment and they prescribed less when it wasn't, you know, private insurance billing, you know, giving you money for everything that you bill, every procedure, there were less procedures prescribed, which is like surprise, surprise. I think she's not, she might be the one that said, I think Andrew Yang actually brought up that um, anecdote. However, it's the same doctors with no middlemen and I just could not it sounds so out of touch and it made me want to scream at the TV. Like, have you guys been in the public office, been in public service or the government, had cushy government jobs for so long that you really know that many people that love their insurance and or is it inconceivable? Have you just never been unemployed before? Is it so out of the realm of your life experience that you could end up unemployed. I don't understand what could possibly be so great about insurance that is tied to your job. We people live in fear of, of losing their jobs because it means, hey, you get to die faster. It sucks. As an artist, the things and the kind of things that artists do and have, if we, we take all kinds of jobs we don't wanna do, 
just to have health insurance. It keeps us from really like freelancing in the ways that we really could. I mean, and then we just take risks and we don't have it anyway. But could you imagine if you didn't have the burden of having, you know, my union, I'm in to pay dues to two. Tell me that if I don't work a certain number of weeks in my trade of acting, that I basically don't deserve to be alive. I'm being hyperbolic, but that's kind of the way I look at it. And are they really saying I should die? No, but this is the way that we pay for these things is partially through your employer. So if you're not employed, you don't get to have health insurance. So how does that help people during a recession? How does that help people who, you know, can't work for some sort of disability, who are just not lucky, who just shit happens to, you know, we can't all be uh, comedians who get more work immediately after some distasteful thing that we do at our company. We, we can't all have that. We can't all have the arms of the world coming to save us when we make a bad decision. So if I get drunk and moon everybody at the office party, I'm out. I want to have insurance. So I really was excited to see that address because it is one of those things that makes us sound, makes the Democrats sound so out of touch that I just can't figure out. It's like, who did you interview that told you they love having to call their insurance for stuff and it would just make their life so much more complicated if the same doctors that they have a great relationship possibly they could access without their insurance. No one told you that. So why do you think people want their insurance so bad? And that's why Bernie Sanders wants to have a private option be illegal because what they don't understand is that, or maybe they do and just are not visionary thinkers or not forward thinkers, is that if you have some system that the better doctors can go to and get paid more for, they're going to go there. So as long as you have some people, what I'm trying to say is it's not an absence of choice is not a choice. So when Pete Bootyhead says, I think Americans are smart enough to be able to choose, it's not smart enough to be able to choose. It's do you, do, some people have more income. Some people have more access. Some people have, you know, however they got the better insurance, they have it. And it's not a choice for the people who don't. So it's just an uneven thing to compare, I think. I feel like to like compare choo- making an educated choice for what kind of insurance you want to someone who could only have that kind because they can't afford the other kind or they don't qualify. So that's why it doesn't make sense. And I just wish they would let it go. But yeah, it sounds really liberal elitist. I, I guess in, it's kind of funny because I don't think the conservative. I mean, the conservatives don't believe in universal health care. So they... But we already know that they're elitist in their own way, and they just like to throw that back on us. Um, okay, let's see. Uh, I have written down, I know it's not the American way, and we think you should die if you're not being the most highest-earning member of society, but why do these assholes think it's great to have your employment tied to your insurance? Yeah, so... Yes. Yep, 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 yep. Uh, Joe Biden basically is, his argument is, you know, like we can't change anything because it would take too long. I will admit I haven't heard the plans for the interim of how people will handle, you know, the universal health care, like what would happen in between the way it is now and when we get to that system. But I'm also not sure why all of the opponents assume that there would be no health insurance in between because there's health insurance now, right? 
So it's like you're trying to change something that already exists. And people are already insured now. So it doesn't really suggest to me that there will be no kind of insurance on the way to changing something. Because it's just like, it's not like a video game. You don't just like game over and start over with zero live. Like what I'm trying to say is it's just like, it doesn't make sense that you would cut off everything in order to change it. I could see the change happening slowly. I could see, you know, starting with kind of how Obama tried to start it and rolling everyone who's not on something into something. Um freeing up a certain amount of doctors at a time, switching over certain clinics until suddenly it's the majority of clinics and everyone who has fancy private insurance just has to drop off. Yeah, so I could see maybe changing it for the people who don't have any first and then the people that are okay with love their private insurance tied to their jobs, switching over later. Yeah, I'm not sure why they try to suggest that there's just going to be a vast void black hole of nothing on our way to having the this huge big structural change i don't get it it seems i guess it's just a tactic for arguing but when you really think about it it doesn't make sense um yeah i just have more sarcastic stuff written down about like don't you all just love calling the claims department do you love those three-hour calls like what is so great about private insurance like stop tripping um let's see what else did i write down uh, i wrote down that i love when elizabeth warren says pardon it's so sincere, but it's also a little shady. She pushes her glasses up and says pardon. And in that pardon is so many things like, you're not enunciating. This wasn't a smart question. I need more time. Settle down class. All of those things are there. It's great. She's just unrattled. She doesn't, she's not like, oh, I have only a little bit of time to say this. It's like, pardon? You want to you say that clearly so that I may respond in a clear and concise manner? it's it's so great she just that's that's some want to talk about somebody else that can take trump she can take trump andrew yang i don't think can he is way smarter than him obviously but that's not what that's not bombast that's not what wins the sound bites and the quick you know the quick sound bites i was gonna say repartee but usually say witty repartee and there's nothing witty about any of the things that trump says um, uh, Yang had that joke that I don't think went over well. I'm Asian, so I know a lot of doctors. And, oh, yeah, then he named the clinic in Cleveland. That was a Cleveland clinic. That was the example where they um, had doctors, like, stop billing for procedures and saw that they prescribed less procedures. That it. People sometimes are have been saying that it's a little inconsistent for him to lean into the positive Asian stereotypes and then want to later not embrace, you know, basically stereotypes are all like part of racism. And it's true that a lot of Asian people are doctors, but it's also true that I think Asians are one of the poorest minority groups in New York City. I think Chinese people are. They're the, the highest, one of the highest users of public assistance. So it's just, you can always talk about the top achieving part of your ethnic group and then leave everybody else behind you know Cambodians and LA and stuff like they're in gangs like they're not well that's a huge generalization but what I'm saying is they're not known for being all doctors so do you mean East Asians East Asians from where and it's just dicey it's like I feel the same way when black men try to embrace the black men have big di all have big dicks things first of all <laughs> lies that's not true. 
But I get really uncomfortable because it's like you don't know where these things came from. You're, the, the big dick part is supposed to be in lieu of a big brain. And this started from slavery, from thinking black people were more animalistic and had more animal-like sexualities and, and qualities. And it's very uncomfortable for you to try to claim that part. Like you, you think when people are fetishizing you is a compliment. It's not. They're basically telling you your dick is all you have to offer and that a lot of other, you know, creepy things about sexual violence and prowess. And we, we can't, you can't dip back and out of the stereotype pool. It's dicey. I mean, I feel like, I guess I do do that with Nigerians, but I don't know. Yeah, we're scammers, but we're also, you know, one of the most degree-wielding minorities in the, in the, in the country. I, I, I claim both. Anyway, I will just close with um, Beta O'Rourke. I might be lying about closing, but Beta O'Rourke had a moment that was really beautiful, and I almost teared up a little bit. I have changed my feelings about him. I don't really have that many feelings about him, honestly. I just was kind of making fun of his Spanish last time because everyone was going in, and it was awkward. But he really stood up there and said racism is endemic. It's part of how this whole country was created, 1619. He quoted 1619, as you know, it's the anniversary. Um, Times, the New York Times is doing this huge research project on 1619, the date that the first African slaves came to American shores. Um, he, he, he said that he um, wrote down trying to read my own handwriting because I think I wrote, that's my nigga. Don't do this, okay, white people. Just because I said that, you're nobody's nigga. Don't ever repeat that. Those are just my notes. Um, he, he wants to bring, have a reparations bill, and he very clearly and explicitly stated that the people who are alive right now are in the situations that they're in, black people, my people, from being disenfranchised over centuries, and we did not get what we were owed, and we are owed a thing. Just state facts. State facts, Beto. Uh, yeah, and so he said white supremacy is a virus. It's got to be stamped out. It's not a surprise. It's something that started from the beginning, and we have to address it. And it was very powerful to see someone unequivocally state facts. And not a lot of white men in his position would ever get up and say that because it's very uncomfortable. It's there's people are hugely defensive about this. I don't. I'm not responsible for my ancestors. You don't have to be responsible, but we have to still fix things that were set on a bad path in the past. You know, so I, it was a very powerful moment, and I felt very seen and. I wonder, I hope a lot of black Americans felt that way too because we deserve those moments. We deserve to feel seen and to be acknowledged on big stages. For He literally said that this country was built on our backs, which it was. And it's just nice to hear those things acknowledged, that we're just not some blight of poverty and ghettohood that just randomly got here. We built the country. We were forced into all kinds of detrimental to our health, sanity, livelihood situations, terrorize, like, I, it's, it's, um, yeah, I mean, American history has, it's not been great to black people. It's a secret. I feel like it's recently 
becomes some sort of secret. But it was nice to hear him say that. Um, Cory Booker, I really liked this policy. He said that when he's in the White House, there will be an office of white supremacy and hate crimes and an office of environmental racism. And I really hope that he gets to be in the cabinet of whoever is elected and do these things because it's kind of ties into what Beto is saying. Like, you don't get to just pretend like these things are incidental. They're their own thing. It needs to be focused on and not focusing on it is letting it grow. Like, the, like you, it's not enough to be neutral and it's not enough to just be like, this sucks, and to start some community programs for after school. Like, we don't, we might need that, but we also need you to stop poisoning water. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you stop poisoning water and putting lead in, in, in children's homes and water, then there would be better outcomes for school, People might do better. I mean, there's just there's just so much at stake. So that was a really amazing idea. I've never heard anyone say anything like that. Um, blah, 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 blah. Buttigieg tried to, he also tried to say that, you know, there's generational theft of black resources and lives and wealth. And he compared his plan to the Marshall Plan. He said it'd be as grand sweeping as that, but he did not go into detail about what it was. Um, uh, Kamala Harris, I don't even care to double check things she says anymore. I don't, I don't care. Uh, Also, Beta O'Rourke was also very unequivocal about gun control, which he has been recently. He just said, look, you don't need an AR-15 to hunt. You don't. I don't really give a fuck. Like, you don't need it. And I really appreciated that because I've been trying to tell people also that I don't give a fuck about your hobbies. I don't. Um, I don't know what a better way to say it is. You don't get to do something that's fun if it kills other people. And the right to bear arms, it doesn't say the right to bear any types of arms. So let's just interpret this the way we like to take liberties with the Bible and stuff like that. Let's just Let's just keep that same energy and make some loopholes and just let's let's make the same loopholes we did with life liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Let's do that. Let's do, let's make the same loopholes we did writing that when more than half the country was enslaved. And let's say that the right to bear arms does not mean that you can have any type of gun you want. It doesn't say that. It says you have a right to bear arms. You know if we really want to be uh you really want to be cunty, what if it just means arms? Like I bet we could have a etymological uh, discussion of whether arms even means guns. What if you have the right to to bear a bayonet and a steak knife? Because really, you can arm yourself with something. Like that's that's the word. You can arm yourself with a thing. That doesn't mean a gun always. Food for thought. Bet you didn't think about that. <laughs> okay, and that's it. Those are all my debate thoughts. Um, yeah. Oh, wait. No, I forgot a huge thing. <laughs> okay, so when Joe Biden was asked that same question, um, why are you the best person to speak about racism? And, oh, no, this is what I love. What they do is when they know that someone has said something problematic about a certain topic, they'll be like, well, you really need to answer this, you piece of shit. Tell us what you mean by this. So for him, he didn't even get to answer the same question. They said, um, 
Lindsay Davis, the, the beautiful black woman who was one of the correspondents, said, in the 70s, you made the remark, I don't feel responsible for the sins of my father and grandfather. I feel responsible for what the situation is today and for the sins of my own generation, and I'll be damned if I feel responsible to pay for what happened 300 years ago. Again, this personal responsibility thing that white people, some white people seem to espouse. I'm not, I don't get it. So Davis, then Davis said to Biden, you said that some 40 years ago, but as you stand here tonight, what responsibility do you think that Americans need to take to repair the legacy of slavery in our country? What responsibility do you think that Americans need to take to repair the legacy of slavery in our country? Um, yeah, his answer was incoherent. And it was actually racist. So this is his whole response. I'm just going to read it. Well, they have to deal with the, look, there's institutional segregation in this country. And from the time I got involved, I started dealing with that. Redlining, banks, making sure we are in a position where, look, you talk about education. No one, no one's talking about education at all. I propose that what we take the very poor schools, the Title I schools, triple the amount of money we spend from 15 to 45 billion a year, give every single teacher a raise to the $60,000 level. Number two, make sure that we bring in help the teachers deal with problems that come from home. The problems that come from home. We have one school psychologist for every 1,500 kids in America today. It's crazy. The teachers are, I'm married to a teacher. My deceased wife is a teacher. They have every problem coming to them. Make sure that every child does, does in fact have three to four and, and five-year-olds go to school, not daycare, school. We bring social workers into homes of parents to help them deal with how to raise their children. It's not that they don't want to help. They don't, they don't know quite what to do. Play the radio. Make sure the television, excuse me, make sure you have the record player on at night. The phone. Make sure that kids, <clears throat> sorry, still have a cold. Make sure that kids hear words. A kid coming from a very poor school, a very poor background, will hear four million words fewer spoken by the time they get there. Just sipping on some Diet Sunkissed. Purely chemical, purely delicious. To let you let that digest. What? What was that? Someone asked you what America you know, need to do about the legacy of slavery to repair it. And you start talking about how black parents don't know how to raise their children and it's not their fault, they just don't know what to do. This article I'm reading, I want to quote, who's, it's Ryan Grimm from The Intercept. <clears throat> I want to quote him because he, he does say a point that I just want to credit to him that this was not adequately highlighted in the post-debate coverage because many people probably zoned out by then, and he sort of was making rambling comments that sounded incoherent to me throughout the night, and Julian Castro even got into him, tried to make him sound senile, which he kind of did, because he said, you know, my that you will have to opt into this if you that he said about his healthcare plan, like the difference was like you have to opt into the um, the uh, Medicare part. So if you lose your job, you have to opt into it. 
which implies a period without coverage that everyone's so worried about. And Julian was saying, like, you're automatically enrolled. You're just always enrolled, kind of. And uh, he said, then two minutes later, Joe Biden was like, no, I didn't say you have to opt in. And Julian was like, you just said that, which, which he did. He just said that. So, yeah, other thinkers are saying, is this not one of the most explicitly racist moments of, the, of all time in a Democratic primary debate? Talking about how black people can't parent their kids and stuff and social workers and the schools, the schools, the schools. It was just like a whole bootstrap, fix yourselves, pull your pants up and stop listening to all that hip hop. Like, what the fuck does that have to do with the leg legacy of slavery? It's nuts. It's, it kind of shows that, you know, everyone else is up there talking about reparations and that's your answer. So I, you kind of told us what we need to know. You don't think there's anything that America owes black people except raises for the overworked teachers like your wife. Yo, that was weird. I, I'm going to say this. Obviously, we want a Biden instead of a Trump. We just do. I've seen articles saying we don't need mediocrity. We don't need a status quo. We need change. And it's so true. But let me be cynical for a minute. I'm used to things not changing for the better that much in this country. I'm used to, yeah, I mean, our country is what? I think the hardest one in the world to change social classes. And most people die where they started out. And, and the vast majority of our rags to riches stories are people who were immigrants and came here and made a life that probably had a lot of skills in their home country, but came from a turbulent situation for whatever reason. So I'm used to things not changing, but what I need is for, well, A, the world to not just blow up from, from global warming and for the world to not blow up from, you know, missiles from another country. So Trump needs to go. He needs to go. But I really hope if Biden gets elected that he surround himself by a cabinet that controls him clearly, you know, in the same in the same way that Trump is surrounded by a lot of people that are in some ways more nefarious than him. But except let's not make these people nefarious for the Biden side, because also just these people are really, really old. There's no other arena in life, and I don't want to be ageist, but there's not a lot of, we don't really, we kind of like snicker a little bit and get a little wary of 80-year-olds driving. We have a higher expectation, a higher standard of mental agility that we want from people in the workplace. You know, people are experiencing workplace discrimination at, you know, if you're 58, if you're 60, people might think you can't turn on a computer or something. People have a really hard time re-entering the workforce, et cetera, et cetera. But we expect someone who's 80 to be in charge of drones and stuff. I think it's kind of strange. And I don't ever want to say that you're ever too old to follow your dreams because I will be hoeing in these streets when I am 88. But I do think it's kind of awkward and like, yeah, he's not looking too good or sounding too good. That's all I have to say. All right, y'all. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Cake and Kombucha. If you like what you hear, if you want more content, you know what to do. You got to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. We out here. We out here. We out here. Um, I don't have... Any other announcements except keep looking for my Instagram. We're going to have some new launches for the fall and you will see a lot more interactive content. You're going to be getting show notes and you might just be getting some live drop-ins from moi. All right. 
See you on the flip side. Cake and Kombucha is produced and hosted by actress, writer, and singer Kelechi Azia. It features music by the talented Melanie J.B. Charles. If you like what you hear, check out MelanieJBCharles.com. Oh,